You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Here at the Spy Museum, we get the world's most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies and intelligence officers, coming in to answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected author debriefings. We are joined today by Tom Ryan, who began his career in intelligence after being drafted into the United States Army in 1957, serving three years in the U.S. Army Security Agency, which is in charge of signals intelligence for the Army. After completing his military service, Tom signed on with the Department of Defense as a civilian and served in a variety of intelligence-related capacities, including at the analytical, managerial, and executive levels over the next 35 years. In retirement, he pursued his interest in the Civil War, and traveled extensively visiting many Civil War sites around the country. He became a special contributor to the Civil War page of the Washington Times and published over 60 articles and book reviews from 1997 to 2009. From 03 to 05, he published a five-part series of articles in Gettysburg Magazine dealing with intelligence operations. Tom is also a member of the book review staff of the Civil War News, and he's written reviews for the Washington Post and North and South Magazine. He also published a study about Irish immigration to America during the Civil War in the Irish Sword, the Journal of Military History, Society of Ireland. Since May of 2011, Tom has been writing a column for the weekly newspaper The Coastal Point, Ocean View, Delaware, titled Civil War Profiles. The column focuses primarily on the state of Delaware's participation in the Civil War. He self-published a collection of these articles titled Essays on Delaware During the Civil War, a Political, Military, and Social Perspective. Tom frequently speaks on Civil War subjects at libraries, historical societies, and civic organizations. He is former president of the Central Delaware Civil War Roundtable and a member of the Gettysburg Foundation, Civil War Trust, Fort Delaware Society, and Delaware Historical Society. He is also the author of Spies, Scouts, and Secrets in the Gettysburg Campaign, How the Critical Role of Intelligence Impacted the Outcome of Lee's Invasion of the North, June and July, 1863. Tom, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. My pleasure be here. So whenever we have authors on, I want to ask about inspiration. There are a lot of books written about Gettysburg. If you went to a bookstore or a library, you just have shelves full of books about this very famous battle. What inspired you to write yet another book about the Battle of Gettysburg from an intelligence perspective? Well, of course, uh, with my background, 38 years in intelligence, uh, it, I, when, I, when I started researching the Civil War, I discovered there really wasn't very much or had been written about intelligence. As a matter of fact, you can count on one hand uh, the number of books that have been written about military intelligence during the Civil War. So that was my, my motivation because of my background, my interests. I wanted to, actually, I wrote a, a review of a book that was published back in the early 2000s about Grant's Secret Service by William 
Fife's, uh, a professor out in uh, Iowa, at University in Iowa. And at, at the end of that um, review, I said, what's needed is in this field are um, reviews of, of the um, individual battles, uh, taking a look at both sides, uh, how they collected and used intelligence. Little did I know, 12 or 13 years later, that I would be the one right. who actually started writing that. Because no one, not very many people, actually are writing about intelligence during the Civil War. Well, and even when they are, they're writing about big picture intelligence, about strategic intelligence. And there's very little about military tactical intelligence on the, on the ground level, which is what your book deals with more, more than any other I've seen. Exactly, yeah. So another question I, I constantly want to ask our, our authors is about sources. Now, for a lot of our authors writing about more modern intelligence operations, they run into trouble when it comes to classification and, and the ability to get certain documents or certain information. You don't have that issue, but when you're dealing with time periods that are 150, 200 years old, you have a whole other set of problems when it comes to sources. Can you talk a little bit about how you came across the documentary evidence for this book? Well. It's interesting that the National Archives actually has a collection of uh, documents that um, pertain to the Bureau of Military Information, which was the uh, Army of the Potomac's intelligence staff. However, those documents were hidden away for the better part of 125 years, <laughs> and no one knew they were there until a uh, former... A colleague of mine, actually, at uh, the National Security Agency, uh, discovered these documents and, and published a book um, about the um, uh, intelligence operations in, in the uh, for the for the Northern um, uh, Army, and so th those were the basis for the for this book, and also documents at the Library of Congress. Uh, certainly the official records, mm -hmm. and if you comb through that very carefully, there there are a considerable number of, of, of reports and messages and whatnot that relate to intelligence, at least in some respect, and you have to weed, pull those out and, right. and use them accordingly. So yeah. the trouble is just weeding through the documents and finding places where intelligence is mentioned that other historians just brushed over, hadn't noticed, they were focused more on the fighting on the ground. The stuff was right in front of them. They just never pulled it out before. That's true. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So your book does a, a great job in demonstrating the importance of intelligence during the entire southern invasion of the north, right? It'd be one thing just to focus on the three-day battle of Gettysburg, but you've also focused on everything leading up to the battle, the battle itself, and then the aftermath of the battle. Why, do you think, why did you think it was important to include the before and the after in this book? Well, the, especially the before, the, of course, the... Invasion began in, on June the 3rd, which was an entire month before the battle actually took place up at Gettysburg. But there was a lot of maneuvering that was going on that eventually uh, affected what the outcome of the Battle of Gettysburg. One incident in particular was when Jeb Stuart, who was the co commander of the Confederate Cavalry, the Army of Northern Virginia Cavalry, Robert E. Lee's Confederate officer, um, decided to try to take a shortcut through the Union Army, which at that time was stationary, sitting in front of Washington, D.C., to protect the capital from invasion. 
And but the there were seven corps as part of the Army of the Potomac that were spread out anywhere from five to ten miles apart, so that a scout by the name of John Mosby got behind went behind the Union lines and discovered that there was an opportunity for for Jeb Stuart to take a shortcut because he needed to get because of Robert E. Lee's orders. He was needed to go into Pennsylvania and protect the right flank of one of the corps, first one of the corps that had already arrived in Pennsylvania, and that was Richard Ewell's corps. And so, Stuart taking that, trying to take that route, was blocked from passing through because of intelligence that had been passed from Maryland Heights out in, in the Harpers Ferry area and from Frederick, Maryland, where a Union spy had been, had been sent up into the Maryland area to observe what Lee's army was doing. The information came back to General Hooker, who was the commander of the Army of the Potomac. He started his army moving northward, which blocked Stewart's mm -hmm route through the so-called shortcut. As a result, Stuart was separated from the main army for the better part of the next uh, week or so. And without Stuart's assistance, uh, Robert E. Lee was, had, a much great, had much greater difficulty in maneuvering when he eventually got into the area of right. Gettysburg. Gettysburg. Gettysburg is a battle that many would argue was won and lost because of intelligence. Um, accurate and timely intelligence for the most part on the side of the Union. Not so much as we just alluded to on the side of the Confederacy. But I would like to use you in this case to, to break down the systems themselves. Kind of talk about uh, how these two armies had their intelligence systems set up. Because most people probably don't understand how complex the system was potentially on the Union side. Uh, and even in many cases on the Confederate side, there's a lot of different elements involved in the overall intelligence picture. Uh, and so I want to ask you about a couple of these. Someone that maybe people have heard of is Alan Pinkerton. Uh, Pinkerton as the, the, the private detective uh, who is given credit for what later become the Secret Service. People look at Pinkerton as being kind of the, the master spy of the Civil War. And you, you, you basically say it not so fast. You talk a little bit about Pinkerton and his impact, particularly about Gettysburg, but overall as an intelligence officer for the Union. Well, actually, Pinkerton was a, was a uh, was hired by General McClellan to provide intelligence for his for his army at the time. He was not really a part of the federal establishment. He was responded uh, directly to General McClellan. When McClellan was relieved from his responsibility as commander of the Army of the Potomac, Pinkerton went left with him. So by the time the Battle of Gettysburg, or the Gettysburg campaign uh, was, was happening, Pinkerton was long mm -hmm. gone. And as a matter of fact, his, his uh, method of collecting intelligence was primarily through the use of civilian spies. And it really didn't have uh, the military intelligence uh, structure that would later be established. Right. 
So Pinkerton was really out of the picture by the time the campaign began. And in, in many cases, thankfully so, because you write in the book that McClellan had dramatically overcounted the Confederate Army, perhaps even two to three times his actual size, and Pinkerton didn't stand up to this. Pinkerton just agreed with his boss and kind of reinforced these bad ideas about how strong the Confederate Army was. That's right. Uh, and as a result, as you mentioned, McClellan thought Robert E. Lee's army was, in some cases, two or three times as large as his own. And in reality, it was about half the, half the size or even less in the actual numbers that he had. So as you mentioned, when McClellan left, Hooker takes over. Uh, and that's where you start actually getting a little bit of organization when it comes to intelligence operations. And one of these, one of these smaller agencies is the Provost Marshal General. Can you talk a little bit about what they did uh, and how effective they were? Well, the Provost Marshal, the responsibility was to uh, initially, uh, as far as intelligence is concerned, is to make sure that the area where the Union encampments were located were secure, to make sure that there weren't spies. Of course, when you were down in Virginia, practically every civilian was a potential spy. Mm -hmm. So that was a very difficult job uh, to do, is to try to uh, maintain security. But he also, they, uh, the Provost Marshal General also was involved in interrogating um, prisoners, uh, deserters, uh, refugees, and escaped slaves, for example. And they would gather that information together and provide it to the commander uh, you know, with regard to anything that would be of value from a tactical or strategic point of view. And they work closely with an organization you've already mentioned, the BMI, the Bureau of Military Information. And this, according to what I've read in your book and what I've read other places, is really the first American all-source intelligence agency, kind of the beginning of everything. Would you disagree or agree with that statement? No, I would definitely agree with that statement, yes. Yeah, the BMI was um, established by General Hooker in early part of 1863. So... By the time the Gettysburg campaign uh, took place, they had already had experience. Uh, as a matter of fact, they were quite effective in determining the actual size of Robert E. Lee's army during the uh, Chancellorsville uh, campaign and battle. As they came within a very small percentage of the number of men that, that Lee had available. So that General Hooker knew at the time that his army was twice the size of Robert, Robert E. Lee's army. But that didn't help Hooker in this case because he lost, ended up losing the battle. But that was his method, uh, his, his methods that he used in, in that uh, campaign was what led to uh, his defeat. And you but, also write that they, they essentially transformed the analytical process, that, that for the first time you have informed opinions of a professional intelligence staff that is informing the commander on the battlefield. That's right. And what they were doing was gathering information from a variety of sources. And they, were they would distill this information uh, to a, uh, what, what they thought was, would be interesting and, and necessary for General Hooker uh, to use for uh, his planning uh, purposes. So. And it was commanded by a man named George Sharp. Can you tell us a little bit about Sharp? I think he's, he's certainly uh, he's not as well known as he probably should be for the impact that he's had 
on the history of American intelligence. Now, George Sharp was a New Yorker. He was from Kingston, New York. He was a lawyer before the war. And uh, as it turns out, uh, that type of background was very applicable to the, uh, to the intelligence business. Prior to uh, being selected as the, uh, the head of the BMI, the Bureau of Military Information, he was a uh, regimental commander and then became a brigade commander. So he had a significant amount of, of experience in the field that he could apply to his in, in, in intelligence operations. So, uh, and it, he operated with a relatively small staff. He had a, a civilian by the name of John Babcock who was um, uh, very effective in putting together an order of battle of, of the enemy uh, using information that was gathered through a variety of methods as already discussed such as interrogating the uh, uh, es escaped slaves, the uh, uh, like prisoners and, and oh yeah, refugees, prisoners, and, yeah. refugees and, and, and that <clears throat> sort of thing. Yeah. And, th and then there's the more traditional military intelligence mechanisms that the Union Army had, everything from cavalry to signals intelligence, uh, which is your field, signals intelligence. Um, exactly. And, and, and Hooker seemed to use these much more effectively than McClellan ever did. I mean, he, he consolidates the cavalry into a single unit so that they can be used uh, in, in a better way for intelligence. Um, and then the, the flag units, which is basically the signals guys, the flag signals guys, uh, seem to have been used much better um, at Chancellorsville, the spreading disinformation and other kinds of uh, deception operations. Can you talk a little bit about the other way, signals intelligence, uh, cavalry, uh, things like geospatial intelligence and creating accurate terrain maps and the maps of the area and how important this was to the Union cause? Yeah, well, the Signal Corps, their basic job was the communications, um, but also... Uh, observation of the enemy and um, they were uh, quite effective in key in helping to uh, maintain communications between headquarters general hookers and later uh, general meade's um, command and uh, the uh, the um, individual uh, corps this seven seven corps of the army of the potomac and they used both flag signals um, and uh, field telegraph, in in some cases, to uh, help maintain that communi communication. But um, the um, the cavalry, of course, was the, the the armies depended on the cavalry, uh, especially when they were on the move, because of their mobility, they were able to uh, go out and and uh, scour the countryside and determine where the enemy was. What they were doing, and uh, reporting back, you know, to, to the commanders. So, um, but you know, the military telegraph that was that was important. Um, using field telegraph and and uh, uh, standard telegraph uh, lines and that sort of thing. But um, and these were all encrypted as well. I mean, the the with the wigwag system, well, they could. the flags, they, they could, could encrypt could them. They could use codes yeah. and, and, and ciphers, and they did. In, in, uh, on many occasions, because both sides used basically basically the same system, so they they certainly could read right. the enemy's signals, unless they were uh, 
uh, using codes or ciphers. Yeah. Now, I, I, I'd like to contrast that to Confederacy because I think it's pretty, pretty stark in contrast to what Lee's system was. Uh, Lee had no BMI. And so Lee was his own intelligence analyst. You know, you write that he personally examined and, and evaluated information about the enemy. Uh, he, he didn't have this kind of professional staff behind him. That's right. And he re relied almost exclusively on, on Jeff Stewart. And Jeff Stewart was a very effective information gatherer. He had proved himself time and time again um, prior to the uh, Gettysburg campaign, first with uh, General uh, Joseph Johnston, uh, when he when he was um, uh, subordinate to him, and then later uh, with Lee, certainly at the Chancellorsville campaign, because it was Stewart who notified Lee that the Union right flank was in the air or uh, undefended, and that's when Lee sent General Stonewall Jackson on a uh, loop around the right flank and attacked, and and. Um, led to the defeat of, of uh, Hooker, General Hooker's army at that, at, that, at that time. And the death of Jackson, too, I believe, right? Am I, am I, I And the death of Stonewall Jackson, too. Am I remembering the my history wrong? Exactly yeah, okay. right. Yeah, okay. The death of Stonewall Jackson. Uh, by friendly fire, right. by the way, it was interesting. North Carolinians, because uh, it was dark, they didn't know he was there. Right. They, so Lee, Lee had a background in intelligence, though, a little bit, didn't he? I mean, practical experiences during the Mexican-American War, uh, he also knew all the enemy commanders on the north. He'd served with all of them. I mean, they all knew everybody knew everybody else, but certainly Lee understood the kind of mentality of the commanders he was facing across the battlefield. Would you say he was especially good at using and understanding intelligence, perhaps more than other people would be? Well, I think very much so. He, of course, he, he, did, he did have the experience, as you mentioned, uh, during the Mexican War, and um, his... Um, Commanders relied quite heavily on, on, on Lee at that time. And then after, after the Mexican War, he was in, in Texas um, on the frontier for a number of years and um, protecting settlers from Indian attacks from Indians and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So he had a lot of field experience by the time the Civil War came around. And um, so he brought that experience to the job, so to speak, and applied it quite well. But he was also um, chose to maintain a very small staff so that he did not have the support and assistance that, say, General Hooker and General Meade had mm -hmm. because of the, they did have the Bureau of Military Intelligence and other uh, intelligence uh, operations that, uh, that supported their, their, their efforts. We talked about Stewart's cavalry. I think what's interesting that you, you talk about here is the, the counterintelligence function of the cavalry and what they can do to screen movements of, of the army. And it's not just necessarily going out and looking for what the enemy is up to, but it's, it's deceiving the enemy about your own forces. And I think that's such an interesting part of what the cavalry was good at. Can you talk a little bit about that, that mission of the cavalry? Well, of course, when, when Lee was... Mar his army was marching northward. They, 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 they began down the Fredericksburg area, Fredericksburg, Virginia area, moved up to Culpeper, Virginia, and then moved west into the Shenandoah Valley. And, and Lee wanted to get to reach uh, 
Maryland and, and Pennsylvania without the U Union Army knowing that he was actually moving in that, in that direction or where exactly he was. And in order to do that, he had to have his cavalry protect against the Union Army coming uh, through the gaps of the, of the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains and finding out exactly where Lee was located. So that was Stewart's primary job at, at that time, uh, near, in the early and middle part of June. So that, um, that, and he was very effective uh, in doing that. Well, you write that he, they, they use things like kicking up dust columns to make it look like the army was somewhere else, or campfires where there were no actual soldiers. A lot of, a lot of ways to try to deceive the enemy into looking in the wrong direction when actually the army was somewhere yeah. entirely different. That's right, and, and Stuart was, was very good at that. He, again, he had the experience and he, and he applied it quite well. Now, we already, you already mentioned Mosby uh, and Mosby's Rangers, and I think this is very interesting. This is really a, people think about guerrilla wars maybe something in the 20th century. This is a true guerrilla force, at least the way that you're describing it in the book, of, of attacking soft, what we call the soft squishy parts, next military parlance, you know, behind the lines uh, places, forcing, you know, small units, forcing very large units to pay them a lot of attention, uh, instilling fear, right? Another word could be terror. You know, and they're, they're, they're basically a, a hit and run guerrilla force that's causing just real problems for the unit. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that unit uh, and how it was set up? Well, uh, John Mosby actually had a battalion uh, of a couple hundred, about two or three hundred men, but often he operated in, in very small, uh, small groups and operating behind the lines. He operated in the area known as Mosby's Confederacy, which was essentially Loudoun County and Fauquier County, Virginia. He knew the area inside out. He knew all the people in the area. He could get protection from them. He could melt into the countryside very easily. He could hit and run. Uh, and uh, he just developed a, um, an expert capability in doing that. And as a result, the Union Army had to use a large number of troops to try to protect uh, their supply lines. And, and that was basically what he uh, was operating against, sort of the, the Union supply routes coming down through, through Virginia. And um, so he, let's say he was very effective. He was also effective in gathering information, and he was the one who had provided uh, General Stewart information about the Union Army being stationary in front of Washington, right. that eventually, but eventually led, because of the uh, good intelligence work on the Union side, to Stewart being separated from from uh, Lee's main army. Well, we've talked about the fact that under Hooker, a lot of these agencies were set up, but Hooker stops being the commander right before Gettysburg, and George Meade takes over. We talk a little bit about George Meade and his experience with intelligence because he, like Lee, did have a background to a degree during the Mexican-American War with intelligence ideas about engineering and, and topography and other things like that. Um, can you give me a little bit of his background and how he comes into the role of commander of the Army and its relation to intelligence? Well, well General Meade was very effective at, at, at the brigade, division, and, and corps level. 
as a, as a commander. And when uh, President Lincoln and General Halleck, who was the general in chief at that time, were looking for someone to replace General Hooker, who had lost the Battle of Chancellorsville, and then um, decided to resign, actually, uh, three days before the Battle of Gettysburg because of disagreements with his commander and with his uh, general in chief. Uh, Meade was the uh, the one that they decided would be best to fill that 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 position. Although Lincoln did inquire whether a number of other generals were interested, at least interested in in taking over the uh, the Army of the Potomac, but um, most of them recommended Meade, you know, for the for the job. Now Meade. What operated a little differently than General Hooker. Hooker, who had established the BMI, Meade was a lot like Lee in some respects, in that he preferred to um, rely on his own judgment uh, to uh, a, a great extent, rather than um, uh, relying more on the BMI, the intelligence staff who was generating reports and um, so, in that respect, he he uh, he was different from Hooker, but a lot like Lee. Well, and, and that became an issue at Gettysburg because he, he, for whatever reason, holds on to the incorrect belief that Lee's army is much much longer than it actually was. Even though the BMI and several other sources are telling him no, it's smaller. Meade, for whatever reason, has this perception that I guess it's about a hundred thousand soldiers when it's really only about sixty or seventy thousand. That's right. And uh, this was this was a, uh, a a typical fault of the Army of the Potomac commanders, uh, dating back to McClellan, and then uh, Burnside, Hooker. They all inflated uh, the enemy, and it was really an anxiety as, uh, issue with, with these generals. They uh, they knew they were up against one of the best, the general General Lee, and Lee had won one battle after another. Mm -hmm. It never lost a battle, as a matter of fact, until the Gettysburg campaign. And um, Meade reacted pretty much the same way as, he, as his, his predecessors did mm -hmm. in, in facing uh, Lee. And you can understand that in your right. facing someone with a reputation right. that he had. And uh, <clears throat> here, Meade steps in to take over command three days before he actually has to go up against uh, General Lee. So it's, it, is, it was understandable. But at the same time, Meade was a very cautious uh, general. Uh, he preferred to fight on the defensive. He was not uh, very uh, aggressive. Uh, certainly didn't uh, move on, out on the offenses on, on his own uh, very often. And we'll, we'll revisit that idea when we talk about after the battle. Uh, but let, let's jump into the battle itself, because I think there's some interesting uh, events that take place. We're not going to revisit Gettysburg because it would take forever, but I think there's some interesting things that overlap intelligence very particularly. Uh, one of them has to do with Buford's cavalry. And, and, I, and I, it comes across from everything I know about it, plus your book, that he really does what <clears throat> Stuart should have done. In for, for Meade, he provides a concise, detailed assessment of the enemy forces on the field. I mean, am, I, am I over... 
it, it's, it's hard to, if you've seen the movie Gettysburg, if you've read the books, Buford comes across as just guy, the guy that saves the Union many because he's in the right place at the right time. He holds off just his, his ragtag bunch of cavalry members, holds off the Confederate advance. But in the intelligence perspective, he's exactly where he's supposed to be, and he's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing by telling General Reynolds and up to General Meade what is the strength and consistency of the Confederate Army. Yeah. Buford was actually doing his job. And, and fortunately uh, for Meade, when he, when, he, when he took over the Army of the Potomac, he decided to appoint General Pleasanton, who was the cavalry commander uh, for, the, for the Union Army, to his staff rather than out in the field. Because up to that point, General Pleasanton had done an atrocious job, <laughs> if I might say, uh, of... Um, misinforming in many cases, uh, speculating about what was going to be taking place, uh, giving advice to his generals, rather than just gathering information and reporting what he found out about what was going on with the enemy. Buford did that job extremely well. He assessed what was going on. He he sent his uh, cavalry out to locate the enemy, Got, gathered all that information together and wrote very brief and succinct reports for General Reynolds, who was uh, the uh, commander of the left wing of the Union Army, and it was closest to Buford mm-hmm. at Gettysburg and to General Meade himself. So that was uh, a, um, a feather, certainly, in, in Buford's cap. And you already mentioned the fact that he held off right. the Confederate Army initially at, uh, at Gettysburg. So he, in both intelligence collection and um, tactical operations, he, he, he did a very effective job. There's another interesting escapade during the, the Gettysburg battle that has to do with the interception of orders sent to Lee from Richmond uh, that Lee was waiting for to try to find out whether or not uh, there would be a ruse to have Beauregard's army um, push forward and kind of pull away some of the Union Army, and at the same time, whether or not he would be getting reinforcements himself. They get intercepted. Uh, they're not enciphered for whatever reason. And it really gives Meade a significant advantage over Lee during the battle itself. I, I've talked a little bit about it. Perhaps I should let you do the talking about this, but can you, can you talk a little bit about this particular event that takes place? Yeah, what took place, well, to set the stage a little bit, Meade was staying in communication with Richmond, with, with, with uh, President uh, Jefferson Davis, and it took approximately three to four days for the couriers to go back and forth uh, between the Army. I mean, it's fair, almost 100 miles, let's say, mm-hmm. if not more, uh, that they would have to travel. And um, in this case, as you mentioned, Lee had been requesting President Davis to bring up troops from the Carolinas and, and southern Virginia and to pose a threat to Washington because he had done this successfully once before back during the uh, Chancellorsville campaign and um, uh, that peninsula uh, campaign, I should say. But um, um, so he, he sent a several several messages to Jefferson Davis and Davis responded and the carrier was coming up through the Shenandoah Valley 
coming uh, came in through Maryland and um, Pennsylvania, but there was a Union cavalry group of about a hundred troops under uh, a uh, at the time Captain Ulrich Dahlgren, his name was, who intercepted the the couriers in in Greek Castle, and lo and behold, in the in the pouch was this response from uh, from Jefferson Davis to Lee, and <clears throat> Dahlgren immediately sent that to uh, General Meade in in Gettysburg. And that was that took place on this on July the second. So in the morning of the third, Meade had this information that essentially said that we cannot provide you any reinforcements. We cannot also we also cannot. Uh, bring up troops to pose a threat to Washington because we're already con we're, we're concerned about the defense of, of Richmond right being threatened down there so that's what that's what that's how that all right so not out. only does Meade know that Lee's not getting reinforcements Lee doesn't know that Lee's not getting reinforcements because it's in Meade's hands and he doesn't have that information that's right. well that's <laughs> and that, and never finds out by right the way during during the campaign so I want to I want to end the actual discussion of the battle with something that most people, if they've heard of Gettysburg, has heard of this Pickett's Charge. George Pickett on the last day, you give it a little setup. He was the only division uh, that hadn't fought on on the second day of the battle. He had he'd been slow to get up, or he had been fighting, providing a rear guard for Longstreet's corps before that, and so he is kind of the center of this final charge into the center of the Union lines. For those, I don't want to spoil the ending. It doesn't work. Uh, it's considered one of the you know most significant military disasters of all time. But what I think is interesting is is what what Porter Alexander argues about Pickett's Charge. Porter Alexander was George Lo uh, James Longstreet's artillery commander, and he argued that the charge failed not because it was a bad idea necessarily, but because Lee didn't have a good understanding of the geospatial intelligence of the battlefield. He'd understand the terrain, and, and as well, as well as he should. And to me, that makes we're in the spy museum, geospatial intelligence matters. That makes it interesting to me. Can you talk a little bit about how Pickett's charge fails because of Lee's misunderstanding of the battlefield? Well, of course, that was uh, Alexander's opinion right. uh, in, that, in that case. And he, he felt that uh, Lee would have been better off attacking, attacking uh, from, the, uh, from the north, coming out essentially from... Uh, the town of Gettysburg itself, because you had the picture, the uh, Confederate army was spread around uh, to the west and to the uh, to the north, and uh, to a certain extent to the east as well of of the uh, of the Union position on Cemetery Hill and, and Cemetery Ridge. But um, what I think is particularly interesting about Pickett's Charge is that the intelligence that was gathered by uh, interrogating the prisoners that had been captured on day one and day two, and the BMI, the, the intelligence staff, was able to determine that the only fresh troops that Lee had left after the first two days of the battle were this division under right. Pickett. Now, Pickett had been, as you mentioned, he would, had been back in Chambersburg protecting the supply line and he did not come up until the second. So, and that was a relatively small division as well because a couple of the brigades had been held back 
in Richmond to the defense of Richmond. So Meade knew that the only fresh troops that he was going to have to deal with on the 3rd of July were, were pickets reinforced by whatever other troops that had already fought. Right. That, you know, that day. So this is counterfactual history, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway. If, if what Alexander is saying is at least relatively on the mark, and if Lee had a better understanding of the battlefield, what, is it more likely that he would have bought into James Longstreet's idea of avoiding that last day of battle and swinging between Meade's army and Washington and enforcing the Union army to attack and set up in a defensive position. I mean, that's kind of the famous what-if of Gettysburg, is what if Longstreet had convinced Lee not to fight that last day on July 4th and instead reposition the Confederate Army into a much better situation? Well, and of course, and that gets back to the separation of Stuart. Stuart did not arrive until uh, the, the 2nd of July, and so Lee did not have his cavalry available. <clears throat> At least he didn't have Jeb Stewart available. Mm -hmm. And he relied uh, uh, heavily on, on Stewart personally. Uh, he did have some cavalry available that he could have used, <clears throat> but chose not to. But the fact that Stewart wasn't there was, was, a, was, a, um, was a main factor. Now, whether or not going around to the left flank of the Union Army and getting between Washington and uh, and uh, where they're positioned up there in Pennsylvania, uh, that's a debatable question. It's hard. Right. It's hard to determine what Lee would have done if he had his cavalry, but without them, he he uh, felt uh, unable to maneuver. Right, uh, and so he did listen to Longstreet who on more than one occasion recommended that he go around mm -hmm. and circle to the, uh, to the uh, left flank of, of the Union Army, or actually behind Big Round Top and little, mm -hmm. little Round Top. Things might have been different. Right, right. Well, I, things might have been different also in counterfactual history if the aftermath of the battle had gone a little differently. I mean, people realize, I assume, that Gettysburg was lost by the Confederate Army, that Pickett's charge fails, uh, but the battle didn't have to necessarily end there. Uh, there was an opportunity for the Union Army to maybe even end the war at Gettysburg that they don't take. And, you know, many people talk about the, the Great Escape, where Lee is able to pull the remnants of the Confederate Army back into the south um, and, and escape from the north. And, and I think there's a lot of great intelligence aspects to this. Certainly there's deception operations. You talk in your book about things like Quaker guns and fake false campfires to mask this movement. And then Stuart, this is when he finally does show up, and his screening is key here. Can you talk a little bit about the great escape and, and how Lee is able to get this battered, beaten army back out of harm's way into the South? Well, actually, when, when Stuart did, come, uh, did arrive on a second, he was available <clears throat> when uh, Robert E. Lee decided to withdraw. On the on the fourth of July, uh, after after Pickett's charge charge failed, he knew he had to go back. He uh, you know, retreat to um, to Virginia, but he had Stuart, and Stuart protected the army, and in a, 
in addition to that, uh, Meade decided not to pursue immediately. He took two or three days to rest the army, to resupply, so that Lee was able to um, move down into Hagerstown and eventually over toward Williamsport, which would be the crossing point in the, in the Potomac River, mm -hmm. back into what was West Virginia and then down, in, down into Virginia. But um, it was Meade's <coughs> hesitancy, let's say, that gave, gave uh, Lee the opportunity to get away with relatively minor damage. Now, Meade did send the cavalry out <coughs> to um, harass, quote-unquote, mm -hmm. uh, Lee's army, but he didn't give him specific directions, give the cavalry specific directions to try and impede Lee's right. army. And that, that was a major difference, harass and impede. Yeah, you're, you're much nicer than me than I would. I mean, to me, from, from reading your book, it, it showed show that Meade had all the necessary intelligence to know Lee not only was leaving, but that Lee was severely weakened. I mean, I, I, I just kind of counted things that you see. He had the data from the BMI, casualty reports, prisoners that he had taken and interrogated, wounded soldiers abandoned in makeshift hospitals, Signal Corps observations, the cavalry telling him, reconnaissance with infantry, all saying that Lee is trying to get away. He's basically limping his way back to the south. And, and to me, you could have captured the entire Confederate army or at least forced them into a knockdown, decisive battle to end the war. I, again, counterfactual history. We never know what... Maybe Lee wins this battle. Who knows? But it seems like the, one of the most egregious missed opportunities. But the war goes on for another two years, and tens of thousands more die. Do you see this as, I mean, you're, you're, you're very nice to me, but it's a major missed opportunity. Well, <clears throat> Meade um, really, after he won the Battle of Gettysburg, that was important to him, certainly. After that, he was more anxious to see Robert E. Lee leave and move back into Virginia. He would have been very happy if, if, me, if Lee was able to do that immediately. But unfortunately for Lee and Meade in this case, the Potomac River was swelled by the, it was raining uh, for a couple of days during the retreat so that Lee couldn't, couldn't cross back over the, uh, over the river. So not so, only wait. So, so there not, was an opportunity for me to catch up. Right. So he not really only didn't seem to want to. Not only did <laughs> me know about this, but Lee was trapped in the north. Is that what you're saying? He couldn't get over the. Oh, he was definitely trapped. There's no question about that. The 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 when they came north, they had a pontoon bridge, but the Union army, uh, there was another division under General French uh, down in Frederick, while the the Battle of Gettysburg was going on, and French realized that after the battle, that he, by destroying that pontoon bridge, Lee would not be able to, to get away as easily. And that was the case. But uh, he was able to, Lee was able to rebuild the pontoon bridge. And Meade was aware that that was going on. And yet he did not send cavalry across the river uh, to come up from Harpers Ferry in attack or destroy that, that bridge was another indication that me was very happy to see right. Lee 
leave. Which is, I mean, what you hear about the Civil War, particular from about Lincoln, is that Lincoln micromanaged the war in many cases. It's amazing to me that Lincoln wasn't just screaming at Meade to go get Lee, or was he? Well, he was indirectly. He he operated through General Halleck, who was the general in chief, and he would tell Halleck what he wanted to see done. As a matter of fact, he wrote a message to Halleck that said, "We have news that Vicksburg." Vicksburg has fallen. Now, after the victory at Gettysburg, if General Meade uh, follows this up, it very may, well may be the end of the war at this at this point. If he could either literally or um, somehow destroy Lee's army, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback this, but it just seems like missed opportunity after missed opportunity. And I guess what Meade stays in command until 65, right? Isn't he, doesn't Grant take command at the very, very end of the war and kind of just finish things off? Am I, am I wrong? In, well, well <clears throat> you're right. Meade, for the next nine months, actually, was still in, in charge of the Army of the Potomac. But in, in May of 1864, April, May, Lincoln appointed Grant the general-in-chief okay. of the Army replaced to replace Halleck. But Grant chose to accompany the Army of the Potomac. He kept Meade in command of the Army, but in effect, he, in fact, was commanding. Which I found, you know, it, I, I, I thought I knew a lot about Grant the Civil Wars. War, but you, you, know, you talk about, oh, the, 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 the secession of commanders is McClellan, Burnside, Hooker, Meade, Grant. But Grant actually wasn't the same level as the rest of them. No. Grant was the same level as Halleck, kind of the, the George Marshall commander, you know, the, the chief of staff type in Washington. And Meade was still the commander of the Army of Potomac till the very end. That's right. As a matter of fact, when, when uh, Grant marched down and uh, established the siege of Rich, Richmond and Petersburg, he actually had three armies there, in addition to the Army of Potomac, he had the army of the James, and then he brought in the army of the uh, Shenandoah mm-hmm. under um, my friend. I can't think of his name right now. <laughs> more more detail. Sheridan. That was Sheridan. Sheridan yeah. yeah, that was Sheridan. And, well, and uh, Edward Ord was the commander of the of, of the uh, army of the James. So he had actually had three separate armies. Mm-hmm. So Meade was still commander of the Army of the Potomac. Which, yeah, which is the most famous, but it wasn't certainly the, the whole, I guess there were, what, nine or ten armies that were operating under the Union during the, the Civil War? Um, I, you don't need to know the exact number. Yeah. It's a, there, it, there this were, is stuff I used to know. There were quite a few. Yeah, this yeah. is stuff I used to know. I'm just remembering now. So the, the book is Spy Scouts and Secrets in the Gettysburg Campaign, How the Critical Role of Intelligence Impacted the Outcome of Lee's Invasion of the North, June-July 1863. It is fascinating. It is the most detailed account that you will get of the ground truth, the tactical intelligence, the the battlefield intelligence of this Battle of Gettysburg. And the author is Tom Ryan. Tom, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at the Announcement. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. 
We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings. And thanks for listening.